Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our little bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, matey? Fairly tickety-boo for a shitty old rainy day, man. How about you? How's the heavens have opened? Yeah, as I said, I was hopscotching through puddles today, so um, it hasn't been that fun. But Someone messaged me uh, the other week saying that they really like the podcast, and one of the things they like about it is how British we are. Particularly because we almost always start off discussing the weather. Yeah. And that's sort of... <laughs> you can't get more British than that, can you? Ooh, weather's shit. Or it's too hot or it's too cold. It is... I don't know what that is about our national characteristic. Yeah, but it is a mainstay of national characters. So well, it would be rude not to, as the other Britishism goes. Well, they live in Arizona, where it's always hot and sunny. So they, <laughs> they appreciate that they know what's going on on the other side of the planet. What are you, you know, a fucking Through the Cinematalist podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's get cracking with some film news this week. There is a new Van Helsing film underway, directed by Julius Avery, who did Overlord. Right. So there's a little bit... Overlord, I thought, was quite fun. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed we had a lot of fun yeah. out of that, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. The whole zombie Nazi thing. It was a good laugh, yeah, yeah. definitely. James Wan as well, best known for Saw, Insidious, The Conjuring, Aquaman. Um, he's going to produce... Okay. So, yeah, actually, I think he's a pretty good producer from the work he's seen and not a bad director. Who's playing Van Helsing? Uh, we're not quite sure yet. So, he had Hugh Jackman in the original. Yeah. Well, not the original Van Helsing, but the one everybody knows, which I thought was a pretty good casting choice, although it's not a very good film. And it was a massive flop at the box office as well, Van Helsing. Yeah. I always liked um, Hopkins' approach to the character in um, Dracula. Sure, yeah. You know, that was that was a very nicely theatrical one. There's, as we say on this podcast, there's tons <clears throat> of meat on that bone. Yeah, there right? is. There's yeah. an entire opportunity for a really good B-movie schlock, but good fun, which is exactly what Overlord was. Yeah. So that in transplanted to Van Helsing, I think, could be really, really good. But actually, I'm slightly, slightly excited. This is the thing that. that, you know, if a B, we love a great B-movie, but the key word there is great. Yeah. You know, like popcorn, bubblegum, something ludicrous is, you know, it needs to have some brains and hooks behind it, doesn't it? Yeah. Another film in the works at the moment. Yeah, there's going to be a reboot of Toxic Avenger. Why? Yeah. However, Leave it alone. I mean, slight bit of good news here in that they've cast Peter Dinklage. Well, as the Toxic Avenger? Dinklage in the main role. Wow. Yeah. Okay, s- okay fair enough. I'm going to see that then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just thinking, you know, Tromaville, they, they are absolutely batshit ludicrous and arguably inane. And I love that about the Tromaville movies mm-hmm. because they don't pretend to be anything that they aren't. And the to- Toxic Avenger is a classic of, you know, this is shit, but it's... Marvellous shit. Mm. So, but if they are casting Dinklage in a remake, uh, Peter then, Dinklage is a great actor. He is. I've I've got a lot of time and respect for Peter Dinklage. I've always thought he was fantastic. So, okay, yeah, you've piqued, piqued my curiosity there. So there is a documentary about to be released, Liam, that I think you're going to really enjoy, and this is entitled "Crock of Gold: A Few Rounds with Shane McGowan." Mm, lovely jubbly. I know you're a big fan of the Pogues. Love the Pogues. I absolutely adore them. Uh, if you're not familiar with Shane McGowan, please do go on <clears> YouTube <throat> and check out some interview clips of him and some live performance stuff because he does some fantastic music and he's a very eloquent man. However, he does have an incredibly strong Irish accent and for a lot of his career, not many teeth. Not many teeth. And he also did an advert for Colgate in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> which is Amazing. <laughs> but um, he's had his teeth done since and he's actually made him, I think, less easy to understand which is really <laughs> truly incredible the thing that really drew my attention with this article is that uh, they've insisted on doing subtitles 
<laughs> Director Julian Temple said he accepted that the strange mixture of Irish and English could be tricky to make out in the documentary. He said that he told the BBC it was not his choice to add subtitles, but acknowledged that listening to the singer's speaking voice could be an acquired listening skill at times. We certainly knew that in the States we would have to possibly subtitle it, he said. In the end, it's a decision for the distributors to make. Am I maybe reaching here, maybe trying to hypersensitively speak for people, but we knew that definitely in the States, isn't that incredibly patronising towards Americans? I mean, what do I know? Okay, fair enough. I remember watching The Osbournes and watching it on, it must have been back when it was on MTV back in the day, and Ozzy was just subtitled constantly. (laughs) <laughs> and some of it you could get, but I never had any problem dis- you know, getting through his Birmingham accent. But I guess if you're not familiar with the Birmingham accent, I mean, some of the Northern accents, Americans just aren't familiar with them at all. They react with absolute horror. So that's not English, is it? I, I guess, I think, yeah. I think a lot of Americans associate Britain with that Queen's English received pronunciation. I suppose maybe, maybe I, I did speak like a little bit without thinking there because I do remember uh, watching one of Henry Rowland's many interviews that he's done with the gods of uh, rock and roll and punk and stuff. And I remember when he sat down with Ozzy and I more or less understood Ozzy's brummy slur, mm-hmm. but there were a lot of people in the comments who identified themselves as being stateside and they were all like, what the fuck is he talking about? Yeah. And I did empathise with that. So, okay, fair dues. You know? <laughs> this is an article that has depressed me massively, Liam. Uh, apparently people have spent over two billion hours watching Adam Sandler movies on Netflix. Which Adam Sandler movies? Yeah, well, th- this article mentions The Ridiculous Six, Murder Mystery and Hubie Halloween, although crucially doesn't mention <clears throat> Uncut Gems. See, Which I know you were a huge fan of. If I, see, I know Uncut James is on Netflix. I don't know if Punch Drunk Love is on Netflix, but I love those two. I think it is. Yes, I'm sure I've scrolled past it. See, at some it, point. if a generous amount of that two billion hours, you say two, you did say two and not twenty two. Two you? billion, yeah. If a generous chunk of those two billion hours were allocated to Uncut Gems and Punch Drunk Love, I'd say fair enough. But if they're not, <laughs> that's pretty bad. I have never ever <clears throat> understood the attraction to Adam Sandler comedies. With the exception of uh, Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison. Yeah, I mean, th- those are the two people I always bring up. And I do like those films, but I think they're the exceptions to the rule. Yeah, I, I've discussed with people before how I think you can demarcate Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison because when you look at Adam Sandler comedies past them, they all have this shrieking, shrill really excessive patterns of his gurning and silly noises that hardly popped their head at all in Happy Gilmore. And they did occur in Billy Madison, but in a way that had had a lot better comedic timing, something that actually served the film's comic trajectory, whereas in something like Jack and Jill, it is just nails down a chalkboard horrendous. And yeah, yeah, I can't understand it either. Yeah, I reviewed Hubie Halloween fairly recently on the premium podcast and I had some real issues with the fact that he was playing uh, what is quite obviously a mentally challenged man Mm. with his face gurning and silly accent thing, which I thought in 2020 is a bit of a, you know, in the 90s comedies, maybe that was, you know, you could say, oh, it's different times, people weren't that aware. In 2020, I thought that was really weird and bizarre. And I thought it was weird and bizarre actually that other reviewers didn't pick up on it. Because it is a real face-gurning performance, and I just found it a bit off. And there were plenty of things in that film that I actually quite liked. I liked Steve Buscemi in it. I liked um, Julie Bowen, and there's there was some actually some fairly decent gags in it. But Adam Sandler's performance, I think I said something like it hung around that film like a lead weight around its neck. Yeah, going like 
Because the, the whole girl, <clears throat> is it really funny? I, I, I don't think Because you were funny. saying that uh, his characterisation in it, the fact that Hubie is um, a bit slow and all mm. of that, you said that that is really, that's forced as a comic device, yeah. didn't you? See, because obviously... And Old Town bullies him, and I just thought it was something quite nasty. Because I was thinking... About, I think you're supposed to be laughing <clears throat> at it. Yeah. I, I, for me, I wasn't. Well, I was reflecting... I, I'm not one of those, you know, fucking censor culture or anything like sure, that. Sure, yeah. I just think it was a bad idea. I didn't think it was particularly funny. Because I was reflecting on your review of it, and it brought to mind The Waterboy, because in The Waterboy, even though Bobby Boucher is somebody who is arguably a bit slow. I, th- I actually think that in that, it's used to quite an, a sort of understated, poignant effect. I think it it, it it sounds like to me that in The Waterboy, that works far better and the intention is has more clarification, clarity to it rather. Whereas in this, I still haven't watched Ubi Halloween, but in this it does, it does sound just kind of strange and tasteless and tactless. And Which I would say covers a fair bit of Adam Sandler's comedy. Yeah. <laughs> people love it and I don't get it. So you contact at Cinemental Cast, etc. If you're a big Adam Sandler fan, what am I missing? What is so fantastic about it is is filmmaking over because I really really don't get it at all. It's not my kind of comedy. I'm I'm a big Lebowski guy. You know, I'm a my kind of comedy is the Coen Brothers kind of humor. I when it comes to Adam Sandler comedies, the width and breadth of them, I'm just sat there scratching my head, wondering what the fuck. And we've got news about Jurassic World three. Oh, which right. has been in production for ages. This is, I, I thought this was quite an interesting point, actually, is that Jeff Goldblum's been interviewed about it recently. And he said that they've been reshooting some stuff and changing some stuff around to reflect COVID-19. It, basically, they're going to do some framing of it in the sense that having dinosaurs released across the world changes the world. But having a modern plague going through the world has changed everything as well. Yeah. And so they're going to do some stuff with masks and they're going to try and relate that thing in. Which I thought was interesting because I've yet to see a production that isn't a soap opera that has actually referenced, you know, people wearing masks, social distancing, all that stuff. How long do you think we are away from films and TV productions having to do that as because it reflects the modern world? And it would look weird if it didn't. What soap opera have you seen that um, incorporates COVID into its narrative? Uh, the odd bit of EastEnders has been doing it. Really? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't watch it. Only so. in terms of like social distancing and mm. you know, like cafe. I don't really watch EastEnders. It's just on in the background occasionally. But things like um, cafe owners having to socially distance their tables. It's sort of on the periphery. They do reference it because it makes sense because it's supposed to be a show about current events, even though it's about this dreadful part of London that is completely miserable all of the fucking time. So it's not realistic in the slightest, but <laughs> they are actually putting it in. I, I wonder when we'll start to see films doing that as a reflection of this is how the modern world is now. Well, I think if you're endeavouring to make a socially realistic film, then I can completely understand it. But I would argue that that has the potential to impede your storyline. Mm. Because if you're if you're making films where you're incorporating the reality of COVID nineteen into the fold, that's going to stop you from doing certain things narratively. You won't be able to, for example, have a scene in your screenplay that takes place in a large crowd, mm. should it call for it, or you know, some sort of climactic or cathartic embrace between two characters. Yeah, so it's we- go- I think it's gonna be a bit limiting. I just think that's going to really tinyfy your scope. Yeah, yeah. So I think if you if you are able to work around it, I don't think it makes sense to anchor your storylines on the fact that COVID is real. But that's just me. If you disagree, then fair enough. I think know. we're going to see it more and more in the, some of the productions incoming. Quite possibly, yeah. Well, I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting, but 
I personally am not really looking forward to seeing it reflected in fiction mm. because uh, I, I just <laughs> now more than ever I like things to be a little bit more escapist than usual. <laughs> okay, then we best get on with some film mm. reviews. Then Macy, what do you have for us this week? So first up, I watched a new one from a director Thomas Bazooka. That's how his name is. Thomas Bazooka. Yeah, his, his surname is spelled B-E-Z-U-C-H-A, but he's, he's pronounced Bazooka. So right, okay, like, okay. So, so um, I think that's of uh, potentially Italian or some sort of European extraction, so I'm not trying to mock something nominal, culturally nominal there. No. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I wonder where Tom, the, Thomas Bazooka, yeah. It suddenly made me wonder where the term Bazooka has come from. Yeah, very true. It sounds yeah. almost like it could be Hindi, like a bandana is a Hindi word, I seem to believe. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll be, yeah. yeah we, we need to find out the etymology of bazooka. We'll get Crack on, on I'll Google it. <laughs> so, yes, this is a um, new film from Thomas Bazooka, who has predominantly directed comedy dramas and straightforward comedy films. And this is an adaptation of the novel by Larry Watson, who has written a few neo-Western novels in his time. I haven't actually read any of his work, but... Uh, Apparently, he's a reasonably lauded author. So this tells us the story of George and Margaret Blackledge. George Blackledge is played by Kevin Costner, is a retired sheriff in Montana. This takes place in the early to mid-60s, by the way, this story. And he's married to Margaret, who's played by Diane Lane. And as the film opens, this, this couple tragically lose their son in a horse riding accident. And after their son's death, he's, he's, their son has just had a, a son himself. So the Blackledges are new grandparents. Right. And their son, James, and James's wife, Lorna, are living on the Blackledge homestead in Montana. So James is tragically killed. And then it jumps forward a couple of years where their grandson, Jimmy, is now three years old. And Lorna is getting, has a new husband named Donnie Weeboy. And the Blackledges are present at the marriage ceremony with young Jimmy. And it's clear immediately that this is very much a marriage of necessity, that Lorna just wants to get out of George and Margaret's hair and have a suitor who will provide for her and Jimmy and can take them off to live somewhere else so George and Margaret don't have to continuously worry about the nipper, etc., etc. And they think, okay, well, I suppose we'll just have to settle for this. One day, whilst they're in town, Margaret is out shopping and she sees Lorna, Jimmy and Donnie walking out and about and he witnesses Donnie strike Lorna and the young kid, which obviously freaks her out. She goes back to her husband and says, I'm really worried about them. Goes to check in on them a couple of days later at the department in town. When she goes there, she discovers that Donnie has taken Lorna and Jimmy and has whisked them all the way over to North Dakota in the Midwest to his family's compound. So the Blackledges are both freaking out. Margaret says to George, we have to go and get him back, potentially get the both of them back and bring them back to live with us because this is not good. He's clearly not a nice guy. His family have got a seriously bad reputation. This is our grandson. You know, we love him. We can take care of him. We need to go and get him back. George is a little bit reluctant because he's, he's a retired lawman and he's long in the tooth now and tired and he just wants to settle down and have a quiet life and he doesn't necessarily want to instigate any trouble, which this endeavour could very reasonably do. But he eventually balks to Margaret's like, assertions that they need to hightail it across the country to North Dakota to go and get their grandson back. They travel there. And they encounter the Wee Boy family, which is headed by 
the matriarch is Blanche Weeboy, played by Leslie Manville, who is a very, very menacing woman indeed. She said her and her sons are a, they're not really a crime syndicate. They're just a very, very unpleasant family of thuggish bullies who are reputed across North Dakota and I think the surrounding states for just being incredibly nasty people. And so George and Margaret, they just need to find a way, come hell or high water, to get their grandkid back home to safety. Straightforward enough. Yeah. So, this film features really strong performances from Kevin Costner and Diane Lane, I thought. They've got a really nice, authentic, really believable relationship as a couple in the latter stages of middle age who you can tell they've been married for a very long time. They really do convey a, a, re- a very sweet, realistic marriage that has endured many decades and that's articulated very well during their time on the road together because it is, at least a portion of it, is a road movie. And I really liked Costner and Lane's chemistry in it. It's, it's really nice. They've got some very authentic, playful ribbing going on. They share some very evocative and realistic, quiet moments with each other. And Diane Lane, her performance in this is just absolutely magnificent, I thought. She emotes so fucking well with her face and everything. Costner... I've always quite liked Costner. I know a lot of people are quite ambivalent about him, but I've, I've quite liked Kevin Costner. I, th- I think he delivers a really strong performance here. Him He's and- now becoming something of an elder <clears throat> statesman, isn't he? I think he is. Yeah, and him and I think him and Lane really complement each other very, very well in this film. I really, yeah, as I say, I really like their relationship, and I think it drives proceedings quite nicely up to a point. Leslie Manville also has Blanche Weeboy, who is the central antagonist. Loved her performance. The introductory scene between her and the Black Ledges is very, very uncomfortable because she has Leslie Manville, someone else who has another great talent for doing things with her eyes and an ever so slight micro adjustment in her face, and it is just fraught with extreme discomfort and tension. This is a very, this is a just she's just a very abusive woman, but in a subtle way, she slings out sort of very acidic, barely restrained barbs and insinuates sort of vile threats in a way that is, uh, she doesn't necessarily spell things out, but you're left essentially under no illusions because of her body language, because of the way that a certain word rolls off of her tongue. So these three performances that I mentioned, they are very, very strong indeed, and they kept my interest. But outside of that, the film starts to suffer a little bit because the sons and immediate relatives of... Blanche, wee boy, they come across as feeling quite superfluous. And as a consequence of that, I, I think that as a as a quotient of villainy, I don't actually think the wee boys are that effective outside of Leslie Manville's performance as Blanche. And it gets to the point where I was sitting there wondering, why are they so obsessively intent on never letting Lorna and Jimmy go? See, I mean, I understand that they're a family of sociopaths, and they do have a strain of control freakery running through them. But I've never, I just thought to myself, why are they so, you know, when you get that, you have a villain who is presented from the outset as being very nefarious and intimidating, but it's, maybe it's, it could, I think it's because of under exposition where you think like, you're, you're now starting to annoy me. It's like, just fuck off, you know, <laughs> does that make any sense? Yeah. It got to that point and it's, I don't know, I don't think it encapsulated the the intent that Bazooka had because I started to get very frustrated by the wee boys as opposed to finding them just baseline scary, which I think was the intent. Uh, there's lots of side scenes with uh, the Matt, when the 
black ledges are on the road. They run into a young Native American man who's living by himself on a piece of farmland named uh, Peter, who's played by Boo Boo Stewart. Yes, that's dropped me on the Wikipedia yeah. entry. Boo Boo Stewart as Peter Dragswolf, who's a solitary Native American man who lives away from his family, even though they're just in town in this stretch of North Dakota that he's in. And these scenes are intended to provide a deeper characterization of the Black Ledges and sort of add some emotional nuance and all that. But I just didn't find them at home in the piece. I didn't find them interesting. I thought they actually impeded the narrative flow, to be quite honest. And... When it comes to the denouement of the film, it goes from compelling, well-acted, stark family drama with some under, undercurrents of sweetness, where I was in... Because I, I was genuinely invested. So I, I thought to myself, I really am intri- intrigued as to how this tale is going to end up. And when it got to the climax, it was just very overcooked B-movie fare. And I thought, that's a shame, because that had some really good stuff about it. So, and I, I said as much during my blog review. I'd say that letting go is actually worth the once over, but it had the potential to be so much stronger and so much more memorable than it ends up being. So not a, not a thumbs down. It's not a bad film. It's got great stuff about it, but it, it really needed a tighter screenplay and it really needed a much better ending. So it's, I don't know, B minus, I suppose. It's a bit you know, of a mixed bag. Then. Yeah, very much a mixed bag. Not a bad film, but... An unfortunately somewhat lacklustre one. It's not beyond salvation all across the board. It's just, as I say, probably watch it once. And if you're anything like me, you'll go, that was pretty decent, but it really, really needed some hard work. So, you know, so yeah, it was all right. Um, I looked up the etymology of bazooka. Oh, you did? Uh, Metal tube rocket launcher, of course, 1942. From the name of a junkyard musical instrument, the word is an extension of bazoo, a slang term for mouth or boastful talk, which is probably from the Dutch baswin, which means trumpet. Wow. Yeah, so cool. Something ironic about the verse. <laughs> it's a gigantic trumpet of death. Is that <laughs> but yeah, I, I was thinking about letting go for several days after I watched it. So there was, some, there was certainly something about the film that stuck with me. Something good about the film that stuck with me, but I just wish that it was just enveloped in a much more coherent and fluid package. Because there, there, as I said, there is there are so many components of the film that could have seen it on its way to being one of the year's strongest movies, definitely. But it gets lost in a mire of afterthought scenes and certain characters not being present who, who are ultimately they serve a sort of perfunctory purpose. And it was, it's just a bit disappointing, if anything, really. I'd, you know, because I, I can't write it off, but I don't recommend it either. It's just a middle ground, like, that had so much potential. Fair enough. So. Okay, Liam, what's your second offering this week, then? Okay, now it's time for the really not good in any way whatsoever. Because <laughs> I watched Super Intelligence, the new film from Ben Falcone, starring Ben Falcone's wife, Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> Big fan? Oh, Jesus H. Christ. Melissa McCarthy stars as Carol Peters, who is a former advertising executive who is remarked upon by several of her acquaintances as being the most average woman in the world. She's nicey-nicey, unremarkable, bit of a people-pleaser, never really goes out of her way to do anything for anyone if it's not in their best interest. You know, she's just kind of a... 
she's not really a Mary Sue. She's just a, a bland person, basically. And for some inexplicable reason, this facet about her, or maybe well, you could argue that this is something that just encompasses her, encompasses her personhood, this averageness. Uh, this is noted by an omnipresent, omnipotent, artificial superintelligence, which appropriates the voice of anyone it wishes. And it usually appropriates the voice of somebody who has uh, some personal significance to the person whom it's addressing. Well, Melissa McCarthy's character, Carol Peters, is absolutely obsessed with James Corden. Wow. Yes. So this Another is, one of our yes. cinematist favourites. So this is a film that, in, in, in a sort of, I mean, how would you say, it, and I use this in the loosest, lowest common denominator sense of the term, but in, a, I suppose, a postmodern intertextual way, it references James Corden in the film as a character within its verse. So okay, so he's playing himself. He's, play, he's playing, yes, he's playing himself. James Corden exists within this fictional universe. Right. So... It would have been a perfect opportunity to write him out. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It absolutely would have. So you have <laughs> the ubiquitous voice of James Corden voicing this super... This... Oh, this... <laughs> artificial super intelligence who informs Carol that it has a mission to study humanity and deduce whether or not humanity is worth saving, enslaving, or completely and utterly obliterating. And he wants to observe Carol in her quotidian humdrum and learn about her and, by extension, learn about people. Oh, I see. So she's sort of a human meme, an average... Yeah, he's, well, he, she's so average yeah. that she would be a good example. Yes, of I mean he, the best and the worst. The AI says that he's essentially using her as a guinea pig, you know, a, a guinea pig of exploration, of, of of you know, observation and deduction. And so it's just, <laughs> as I said, it's the ever-present voice of James Corden, following Carol Peters as played by Melissa McCarthy around her daily life, displaying his limitless powers to take control of any electrical device that he wishes and interfere with her life while simultaneously probing her with questions about human behaviour. So James Corden being annoying then? James Corden being extraordinarily annoying in an extraordinarily annoying film. The humour in this film is so forced. I think within the first sort of five to ten minutes, Melissa McCarthy, there's a scene where she goes to an interview where she's being horrifically condescended to by a couple of prospective employers. And the gag is that instead of a chair they've got for her to sit on, it's actually a beanie bag. And there's a couple of shots of her attempting to jump backwards into this beanie bag. And it, it kind of goes through a formula, this scene. And there were a couple of times where Melissa McCarthy's rebuttals to their comments had a sort of dry, weary snarkiness to them that made me go, just to reference something that you've said before, that made me kind of go... Yeah, just that that little sniff. Ever so mildly. And so she comes home after the interview and the AI reveals itself to her in this very sinister, formal, booming voice. And so I thought, not hating this outright so far, Mm -hmm. just just objectively at that point, 
But then James Corden starts speaking and she goes, oh my God, is that James Corden? And I thought, okay, this is going to be shit. <laughs> this is going to be absolute dog shit. And it was, as a, the humour is so, it's that, oh God, I mean, I'm th- trying to think of a way to summarise it, but it's very much that vein of comedy that is just burgeoning, I think, in current years. It's, I call it sort of narcissistic comedy. There's lots, so much self-referential obviousness, just this very dull unfunny, no brain cells to rub together jokes. And they explain, everything is explained. Everything is so on the nose. It's like this, in the screenplay, they're explaining the conceit as if they were talking to a five-year-old about it, just drawing absolutely every detail painfully out and trying to hinge it on jokes that just never, ever land at all. And it, oh, it was, I, I was. I think I was saying, saying to you that about six or seven times in this film, potentially more, I did audible bitter old coot moans. There was a there was a line, and I just went, oh, it was it, genuinely. It was so infuriating to sit through. I know it must be a terrible film <clears> when <throat> you start messaging me while you're watching it. Yeah, going, oh my god, it's that bad. It's horrible. Yeah, because I said. Because that the night that I was settling down to watch it, because I was watching it, obviously, you know, in terms of professional ethics, because I, it had to be discussed on the podcast as a new release and starring somebody who, for one reason or another, is of note. I wanted to get him from work that night and watch White Heat with Jimmy Cagney, but no, I decided not to. Professional <laughs> to the end, my friend. I wanted to watch a diminutive Irish-American psychopath brutally murdering people, but no. I'm watching a couple of <laughs> silly arseholes being totally unfunny and uninteresting. There's a romantic subplot to it where Carol wants to patch things up with her ex, George, played by Bobby Cannavale, who a lot of people will know as Jip Rossetti from Boardwalk Empire. I like him a lot. Turns like, up in a lot of things recently. Well, this is really strange because Bobby Cannavale, Bobby Cannavale sorry, turns up in this. And for the majority of his screen time, this is a classic example of somebody who feels completely and utterly like they're in the wrong film, like the entirely wrong film, because the way that Bobby Cannavale plays George, he should really be in some sort of comedy drama. He be- It's not that the performance is bad, at least for the overwhelming majority of it, but he belongs completely and utterly somewhere else. It's like they've plucked him out of some sort of more mature dramedy, and it's really weird to sit and watch... Bobby Cannavale interacting with Melissa McCarthy amid all of this horrible, unoriginal, unfunny pap in her interchanges with the voice of James Corden. But then Cannavale even starts getting worse as the film progresses. So I think the screenplay just demands it. And he seems to be doing his best to try and and, you know, sort of try and drive it along within the realms of visibility. And I would say the least annoying facet of this film, the least annoying facet by a long shot, is Bobby Cannavale. And even he started to grate a little bit towards the end. But I don't think that was in his control whatsoever. But, oh, God, just absolutely horrendous. Just really, really shitty, lame, bottom of the barrel, following that contemporary pattern of like, oh my God, let's do all these self-referential jokes that like, oh, we're going to pull a bit of pop culture there and we're going to make fun of this person's narcissistic conceit. And it, oh. <laughs> Just really, really bad. And then it tacks on an ending that it thinks is really poignant and is not. And it's, 
Does she learn a lesson in the end, or does the AI learn a lesson? No, the AI learns a lesson. Right. Okay. Carol is presented as being very much a uh, a wholly decent character when all is said and done, and yet yeah, the the it's it's this predictable, utterly predictable ending where the AI learns something about humanity that it couldn't preempt from Carol. It's like oh, you know, even some something about human beings possessing traits that are so transcendent that no artificial intelligence could possibly comprehend them no matter how awe-inspiringly it was calibrated. It would be the ultimate meta fourth wall breaking <clears throat> commentary if James Corden as the AI ended up destroying the world. The, the rise of James Corden was actually one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That would be actually that, great, that would be fourth wall breaking. That would be a great it? satirical insert there actually. Yeah. I think the film rubs it in your face, this assertion, like, look, it's James Corden. Isn't he really funny? Isn't he making himself look really funny? Isn't he delivering lines the way he did that? Because he, he actually says a lot of the times he ends his sentence with, is that funny? Is that funny? And within the context of the... F- <laughs> no. Yeah. No. With, within the context <laughs> of the film, it's him doing things to Carol that a lot of people would argue are not funny, but they're, they're essentially supposed to... They suggest the idea that the robot has something of a you know, lightly sadistic mischievous sense of humour. But every single time the AI in James Corden's voice said, is that funny? Is that funny? I was just thinking to myself, well, no, you're James Corden. Nothing you do is funny. Mm. So really, really, really desperately bad. I really hated this film. I strongly urge anybody who's not listening to never watch it. Tell your friends to never watch it. If they say, oh, I've this new film, Super Intelligence, so we're going to sit down and watch it, please slap them across the face with something and take them out to sit on a park bench and drink a bottle of spirits because that'll be a far more worthwhile scheme in the grand scheme of your existence than sitting down to watch this absolute unmitigated dog shit. It's bollocks. Okay, then. That brings me on to TV of the week. Uh, I'm not going to do The Mandalorian this week. You're not? Oh, okay. No, for uh, two reasons. One was that last week I realised that I got myself into an absolute trap with it, which is every week I have to say how brilliant it is. And as I understand <laughs> it, the new episode is even more brilliant than that. Oh, okay. So I'm going I'm to do two in a row next week and sort of you know, <laughs> compress it a little bit for points of the format. <laughs> yeah, the fair dudes. Uh, I've got so, a couple of other really interesting things to talk about this week, primary of which is a piece that everybody is talking about at the moment. It's been having huge viewer ratings. It's an HBO piece. And I mentioned last week on the podcast, I was trying to think of the most recent HBO piece that impressed me. And I mentioned Silicon Valley being an HBO production. And someone pointed out quite helpfully that I reviewed Perry Mason recently and loved it. Oh, yes. yes. And Perry Mason is, of course, an HBO production. So they are indeed still cranking out great work. So this is called The Undoing. Okay, right. And we have a real all-star cast here. We have Nicole Kidman playing Grace Fraser and Hugh Grant playing Jonathan Fraser, her husband. And we find them living a relatively idyllic life in New York. Uh, He's an oncologist specialising in childcare, so those children with cancer. And she is a therapist. And she has, it's revealed, a very rich father played by Donald Sutherland. And they're living with their one son, having quite a nice time. I think there's some nice banter between them. The son wants to get a dog. Jonathan Fraser, Hugh Grant, is very opposed to the idea. Having this sort of nice family dynamic banter. And just living a really lovely Sex in the City style life in New York. You know, that sort of idyllic, what you would imagine life in New York would be like if you were very rich. You've got a lovely townhouse. 
everything's going swimmingly. They both got fantastically successful careers. Croissants and iced coffee for breakfast. Yeah, all that sort of filthy loot crowd. (laughs) It's it's a wonderful time. Anyway, Grace is part of the school auction committee. So her son goes to this extremely upper-class private school in New York. And she is part of the auction committee and she has regular meetings with a lot of other women and they're putting together this big auction to help out the school and raise some money for charity. When she turns up to one of these meetings... A new addition comes to the group in the form of Elena Alves, played by Matilda de Angeles. And she turns up with a young baby on her arm. And she's just joined the auction committee and they're sitting down having this meeting. And she's very pretty, but there's something slightly (coughs) off about her. She's a bit floaty. She's a bit away with the fairies. And as they're having this auction meeting, she is staring intently at Grace, Nicole Kidman. And Nicole is sort of smiling back politely at her. And she also starts to breastfeed her child openly. And everyone's a little bit taken aback by this, but the meeting carries on. Anyway, that all ends and Grace is um, going about her daily business. And one of her friends calls her up and says, uh, did you see that at the, the auction meeting? And Grace goes, well, yeah, but, you know, it's, she's just feeding her child. It's fine. I said, no, 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 we've been talking about it. It's just, it was really passive aggressive. There's a real sort of passive aggressive way that she did it. The way she was staring at you, there's something really off with this woman. I, I don't like it. But Grace, being a even-minded therapist, go, oh no, 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 absolutely nothing. It was just, you know, so a woman doing what women do. I wasn't bothered by it in the slightest. So they end up having this charity auction. Uh, Grace is there with her husband Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't want to be there. He's very in that way that only Hugh Grant can be. He's very sort of dismissive and witty and he's an Englishman of course because making Hugh Grant do a New York accent is beyond the pale oh my gosh he's an Englishman um, in New York as the uh, the police song goes oh my gosh whoopsie daisy yeah yeah he doesn't want to be there she's forcing to be there they're having a nice time at the auction and Eleanor is there as well and she's staring over intently at Nicole Kidman and everybody notices and goes she's she's staring at you that's Really, really odd. Anyway, Jonathan decides that there's a, a phone call and he needs to go back to work because one of his patients is suffering badly and he's been called away. So he leaves. And Grace goes to get in an elevator after the auction is over and she is confronted by Eleanor. And Eleanor gets very, very close to her and ends up kissing her on the lips. Wow. Okay, that escalated quickly. Yeah. There's a little scene before this as well where um, Grace is at the nearby gym and she's getting changed in the locker room and Eleanor walks up to her completely stark naked and it is a full frontal nudity moment. I mean, as Patrick Stewart would say, you see everything. <laughs> it's a comedy, is it? No. <laughs> and she's very sexually suggestive with Grace and it's a very bizarre vibe. So they've had this fracas in the elevator where Eleanor kisses Grace and Grace doesn't really know what to think about it and just thinks she's a bit of a weirdo and an oddball. She goes back home and to move the story forward a little bit, her husband has to go off to a medical conference in Cleveland. He leaves. Grace goes about her business being a therapist. She's in a therapy session with two of her patients one day and she gets a notification on her phone from the school. She checks the notification and it turns out that Eleanor, as one of the mums going to this very posh school nearby, has been moided. Oh dear. Mm. 
So this obviously causes a massive to-do between the mums. They're all calling each other going, oh my God, what happens now? Did you see that? That's absolutely insane. Grace is understandably very shaken by this, but goes about her day. She's questioned by police officers as to how she knew her. And she said, well, I knew her from the auction committee. She seemed a bit odd, but otherwise she was completely fine. She gets back in the evening to her townhouse and she's been calling Hugh Grant and Jonathan all day to try and get hold of him and tell him that this woman's been murdered and, yeah, have a chat about it. And as she's brushing her teeth in the bedroom and trying to call his phone, she hears a buzzing in her bedside table drawer and she opens the bedside table drawer and Jonathan has left his phone behind and disappears off to Cleveland. She begins to suspect that her husband might be hiding something and may not be the man that he initially portrays himself to be. There is more to this mystery. And there is an interlink here. Certainly she's suggested by the police that they're very interested in her husband and as to his involvement with Eleanor and why he suddenly disappeared after she has indeed been moided. Wow, okay. Does that all make sense? It does. It sounds like there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everything I covered there is the entirety of the first episode. In a good way. Yeah, it sounds very... And that's exactly where I'll leave it because the real key to this piece is that it's a murder mystery. And it keeps you guessing the entire way along. Only in the very last 10 minutes of the sixth episode do you find out exactly what happened. And so it's a, did he do it or didn't he? It's a, or is there more nefarious involvement? Is perhaps the son involved? Is her rich father, played by Donald Sutherland, is he involved? Is Grace really as good at sizing people up as she seems to be? Is there more going on here than there initially seems. And it strings this out over six episodes, which ordinarily would be a bit of a stretch for what is, in a lot of ways, a conventional murder mystery. i tell you what's absolutely brilliant about The Undoing. The script is cut glass good. Yeah. I, absolutely. It's such a tight script. Is it's it a, so, an original screenplay or is it? Uh, this is based on a book originally, I think. Let me just get the name of it. Sorry, here. you may have mentioned that. but No, I'll... I haven't. A uh, 2014 novel, You Should Have Known, by Jean Hanf Korolitz. I'm sure I'm getting that wrong, but yeah. So based on a, an original piece of work, based on a novel, and the script is so tight, it's unbelievable. It's also shot fantastically. I mean, this is one of those shows that really blurs the line between film and TV. Mm. Because in a lot of ways, this could be a two-hour film. <clears throat> it's just spread out as a miniseries across six hours, across six parts. And the direction and the cinematography... And the look of the thing is pure film stuff. And it's starring film actors as well. There is not a single bad performance amongst it. It's lovely to see Donald Sutherland back in the chair as well. He's got a lot to do. And he's alternately lovely and kindly and grandfatherly. And also he's a very rich man. And he is—he describes himself at one point as being a cocksucker. So I am a cocksucker. <clears throat> and not the modern meaning of cocksucker. I'm an old school cocksucker. Donald Sutherland is a performer. When I when Donald Sutherland is playing um, a nefarious individual, he's somebody that I would point out as having a singular talent for being very, very unsettling mm. indeed. He's always been great at that. So, so yeah, Donald Sutherland is, as you would expect, fantastic. Hugh Grant, as well, as a man who's totally on the edge. And, of course, the series, through its scripting, its plot, you're constantly guessing the whole way through, did he do it or didn't he do it? Did he do it or didn't he do it? Hugh Grant plays that um, charm that mm. he's able to do. And I think it's interesting how he had some revelations about his personal life quite a while ago now. And he went from playing the dishy, charismatic British heartthrob 
to the dishy, charismatic Brit- British heartthrob with a bit of an edge and a darkness underneath him. And that's exactly what he's doing here, and it's a wonderful performance. But the true star of the piece, of course, is Nicole Kidman, who I think is a really genuinely fascinating actress. Because I've always liked her. She's very good at playing small. She plays tiny little emotional ticks. And the fact she's playing Grace, this stoic therapist that's like quite reserved and is constantly analysing, that fits Nicole Kidman's acting style very nicely Mm. in that she's putting up this mask in front of herself as her husband becomes suspected of murder and her family suddenly the news gets hold of it she starts to lose her status people start shunning her in the street paparazzi start following her and the sort of keeping up a front but gradually coming apart underneath is something that Nicole Kibben is so fantastically good at and brilliantly so in the undoing this is virtually perfect this show it absolutely keeps you guessing it's completely compelling. The script couldn't be any better. The performances couldn't be any better. It is a landmark piece of fantastic television and just one of the best things you could watch at the moment. It's one of those ones we started watching it and we planned to do like an episode a night and we did it in two days flat. Damn. Because you really want to get to the next piece. There's a lot of twists. There's a lot of revelations. There's a lot of bombshells and it really keeps you guessing right up until the very last <clears throat> 10 minutes. And so you start putting together theories. What if he was involved? She's acting a bit funny. And it throws all these red herrings and little pieces and bits of misinformation at you and throws you off course constantly that right up until the last 10 minutes, I like to think I'm pretty good at reading these sort of things. I wasn't sure either until it does its final reveal as to what actually happened to Eleanor. So it's a superb piece of work and I couldn't recommend it more. I'll definitely be checking this out, mainly because I've always fancied Nicole Kidman. It's no, sorry. yeah, yeah. Sorry to sound chauvinistic, but she she has always been one of my crushes. But I, I've always liked her as a performer. She's never been any better than she is. No, and you know, I mean, you've you've definitely, um, yeah, you've snagged my intrigue on this one. There's something so filmic about it. Mm. There's something. There are no concessions to the TV format whatsoever, and not in terms of casting, not in terms of scripting, not in terms of the visual quality of the thing. It is one six-hour film. But, and it's, I think it's difficult when you do a miniseries like that. To, the tendency is to either take a film plot and blow it out too long or take a TV series plot and shorten it to a point where the brevity actually becomes a bad thing. This is perfect. It is exactly as long as it needs to be. It's exactly as good as it needs to be. It's one of the best things I've seen all year and a fantastic murder mystery. And what's wrong with that? Fuck. I mean, how many episodes did you say there were again? Six. Six. <laughs> Well, I know what I'm binging over the weekend. Yeah, yeah, do it's literally perfect and top marks to every single person involved. Fabulous, all right, nice one, man. I'm mm. getting old with that. And my second mention this week, this is just a little bit of uh, documentary docu series thing, because I reviewed The Crown mm. a little while ago. And people seem to really enjoy the review, and people are really enjoying the new series. And one of the things I mentioned was that there are a hell of a lot of raw documentaries on at the moment because everyone, all the other television networks, are trying to cash in desperately on the fact that. There's all this renewed interest in the royal family, not just because of the news, <laughs> not not wink, 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 Prince Andrew <laughs> and Prince Harry fucking off and all that kind of stuff. There's, it's been a tumultuous few years for the royal family. It certainly, has. <laughs> but the crown, I think, is the driving force. There's also this news article. There's a lot of news pieces recently. Helena Bonham Carter has said that they should um, make it clearer to audiences that the crown is a work of fiction, and I'm just sitting there going, why? Because it's based in truth. And yes, obviously there's bits of it that are works of fiction, but that's sort of how television works. I don't think anybody's so stupid as to sit down and watch The Crown and go, it's all absolutely as it was and true. I think that's an utterly bizarre thing to say, but I I, I don't... Helen Bonham Carter. Did you say Helen Bonham Carter? Yeah. 
It sounds like she's arguably more misanthropic than we are. Treat everyone as if they're a fucking idiot. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> think there's many people watching it going... Uh, most of the criticism I've seen of the crowd has been people going, well, it wasn't actually like this, and actually those two events well, are now... Oh, for goodness sake. Well, that's just the conceit of narrative. As a, just as a very... Because it's a 30-second thing, because it's, it's ever, of ever so slight burdensy. Did you ever see... Reversal of Fortune, the great film where Jeremy Irons won the Oscar for playing Klaus von Bülow, who was based on the real-life attempted murder case. Yeah, I did, yeah. With uh, Ron Silver and all that. Just before the end credits of Reversal of Fortune, it said, some characters and dialogue within this film have been created for the purposes of dramatisation. And I thought, yeah, no shit. Yeah. What isn't? Well, if you'd like to know more about the real story of the Windsor families, and there's a lovely documentary up on Netflix at the moment called The Royal House of Windsor. And what's it works as a lovely companion piece. If you're really into the crown and want to know more of the reality of it. And I, actually, I think through watching documentaries like this, it does show that the crown has, is far more accurate than it has any business being. Sure. Despite yeah, the fact yeah. that people constantly point out all the flaws in it. And you go, well, yeah, that is narrative conceit. That is the magic of television. That's how it works. You have to uh, create drama where you're pretty sure there was drama, but you have to put in the details yourself. That's just adaptation. That's just how the medium works. But if you'd like to know the real story, Royal House of Windsor, it's a nicely done docuseries. What I would say about it is it comes across as being more than ever so slightly pro-royal. And that might be an issue for some, although there are some nice additions like Will Self appears, for example. Oh, as I one of the talk- yeah, as one of the talking heads, and obviously oh. he's very interested in the royal family. But I think from a very Republican perspective, so he adds a nice little bit of counter. Um, my to- um, my fanship of Will Self gets me into a lot of arguments because most people I meet are just like he's a asshole. <laughs> yes, but he's an interesting and erudite yeah, yeah, asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He adds a nice bit of horseradish to what is otherwise a very British bit of roast beef. I, I love the guy, man. I love him. So yeah, I would say overall as a tone, it does come across quite pro royal family. Although it does also attempt to do something of a warts and all story, and it's charting the rise of the Windsors. So going back to George the Fifth. And we're essentially going through the events portrayed in The Crown, but going from a documentary slant, interviewing... uh, One of the big things about this is that it's interviewing palace staff and it's also got access to some royal archive stuff that has never before been seen on television. And they point that out a lot as well. They're obviously very proud of the fact that they've got a load of stuff that hasn't been seen before. All that put aside, though, if you're interested in the inner narrative and workings of the royal family, this is a perfect companion piece to The Crown. I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was quite a successful documentary. Yes, it's biased, but then I kind of get annoyed with people that constantly criticise good documentaries for being biased. Documentaries are always going to be biased by their very nature. A documentary with no bias at all is a, a flat recitation of facts. And having the point of, of the filmmakers come across, even if you disagree with that point, as I said in my Crown review, I'm something of a Republican. I'm not very pro-royalist. Well, but I could look past it. I could go, okay, well, this is a bit pro-royalist, but fine. It's still very interesting. It's still very compelling. Nick Broomfield's uh, documentaries that cover Eugene Terreblanc were very biased against the Africana supremacist movement. Is that a bad thing? Look, you know, Louis, Louis Theroux was biased against the neo-Nazis in America. What's wrong with bias? Just like <laughs> I think any intelligent viewer can watch The Crown and realise that they've made quite a bit of it up. I think any intelligent viewer can watch this and go, oh, well, it's definitely siding on the side of isn't the Queen brilliant? But at the same time, it is doing a lot of things that would piss the royal press secretary off yeah. by revealing yeah. flaws and facets and things that the royal family very much want to keep away from the limelight. So what's the problem here? I think this is basically talking to everybody who's enjoyed the crown and wants a bit more of it because this is 
a companion piece that tells you the real life story behind it. And you can see where the creators of The Crown have got their inspiration from and the events they were trying to portray, except it takes it from a more factual basis. And it's very compelling watching. They're an interesting family. There's never been a royal family quite like it. And there's a lot of compelling stuff there. And I found it a compelling piece. So top recommendation there as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Okay then, Liam, as per usual on the Cinematalist podcast, I have some trivia to finish off with. What's it about this week? Well, off the back of super intelligence, (laughs) which I know is about an AI intelligence. We've done AI intelligence before, but we've never done trivia on intelligence intelligence. No, we haven't. And so that's what I've done. I thought you were hopefully going to reel off a list of all the things that make James Gordon a fucking piece of shit. Uh, I think you've maybe, done, maybe they're just self I think you've done that quite <laughs> quite effectively already, to be honest. Though. But yeah, I've just done some trivia this week on intelligence. So let's have some of this then. Mm. Uh, let's start off with human intelligence being the most intelligent species on the planet, as far as we know. Of course, the uh, IQ test is generally regarded as being the one of the few ways you could quantify intelligence. Although some people, uh, the modern perception towards it tends to be that it's not particularly accurate. And I think I would agree with that. Some of the most intelligent people I've ever met are, are no good at tests and would be absolutely rubbish. Yeah, that, all, all the all intelligence quotients tests is quick mathematical reflexes. Mm-hmm. If anything, it doesn't mean that you're going to be erudite in philosophy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the origins of the IQ test, it was created in 1928 at Stanford University by Louis Terman, who created what he called the genius study. With this genetic study of genius, he hoped to identify young geniuses among 1,000 participants, who he referred to, bizarrely, as termites. Uh, he developed nice. The, yeah. <laughs> it's quite dismissive, isn't it? <laughs> he developed the use of IQ tests to determine genius among the participants, setting the bar at a score of 140. Apparently, Natalie Portman has a score of 140 in the IQ test. Oh, well. Which technically makes her a genius if you believe in the test. Uh, most of the participants have gone unnamed, but two subjects who didn't pass muster were William Shockley and Louis Alvarez. Uh, both men went on to win Nobel Prizes in Physics. Sort of shows the uh, pointlessness of the test, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is the problem with the IQ test because I, I, I would never argue that it's completely and utterly without any merit. I mean, I think it, it demonstrates that you have, as I say, you you reflexive in in certain way. You have an aptitude for puzzle recognition, for example. Mm. But it, 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 you know, oh, this person's got an IQ of nearly 200. Stick them on question time. Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> Researchers have determined in the largest online study on the intelligence quotient that results from the test may not exactly show how smart someone is. When we look to the data, the bottom line is the whole concept of IQ is a myth. Dr. Adrian Owen, the study's senior investigator and the Canada Excellence Research Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at the University's Brain and Mind Institute, Said to the Toronto Star, that was a hell of a sentence. <laughs> there is no such thing as a single measure of IQ or a measure of general intelligence. More than 100,000 participants joined the study and completed 12 online cognitive tests that examined memory, reasoning, attention, and planning abilities. They were also asked about their background and lifestyle. They found that there was not one single test or component that could accurately judge how well a person could perform mental and cognitive tasks. Instead, they determined there are at least three different components that make up intelligence or a cognitive profile a short-term memory, reasoning, and a verbal component. Scientists also scanned participants' brains with a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, or an MRI, and saw that different cognitive abilities were related to different circuits in the brain. Researchers also discovered, and this is the interesting part here, 
The training one's brain to help perform better cognitively did not help. People who brain train are no better at any of these three aspects of intelligence than people who don't. For some reason, people who play video games did better on reasoning and short-term memory portions of the test. However, aging was associated with a decline on memory and reasoning abilities. Those who smoked did worse on short-term memory and verbal portions, while those with anxiety did badly on short-term memory test components. We have shown categorically that you cannot sum up the difference between people in terms of one number, and that is really what is important here. So bollocks then. Fuck yeah. the ITU test. I, mean, I was always one of those people as well. I've always been good at tests. And I always thought it was very unfair at school that I'd often get way better test marks than somebody in my class who I knew knew the subject better than me. Purely because I was good at seeing what the test wanted from me. And they were good at the subject and not good at the test. I always found tests in that regard to be lacking. Yeah. Yeah, I always despised it myself. And let's have some animal intelligence to finish off with then. The five smartest animal species I've got here. Uh, the fifth, in place number five, crows. A 2004 study in the journal Science found that for their size, crows possess unusually big brains. A few years earlier, New Caledonian crows were discovered to be on the same level as non-human primates when it came to tool-related cognitive capabilities. In a celebrated case a few years ago, and I love this, an Israeli man was targeted by a local crow in an apparent revenge attack. The bird's chick fell out of its nest and the man carried it outside of his backyard. It wasn't long before the crow had him in his sights, forcing the man to wear a helmet and carry a parasol for self-protection. <laughs> uh, number four, chimpanzees. Like elephants, chimps recognise themselves and they have also been observed showing a range of emotions associated with human behaviour, such as caring or mourning. Chimpanzees have been documented fashioning sticks into spears to hunt smaller primates. They've also been observed altering long twigs to fish for termites, or using rocks to crack nuts. What's more, they've been found to cooperate with each other in coming up with sophisticated hunting strategies to kill prey. Perhaps not entirely surprising, given that chimpanzees happen to be the closest living relatives to humans in the animal kingdom. I always find chimps absolutely terrifying. Chimps, well, not only that, they're fucking, they're violent as hell, man. Mm. You don't want to get too near one because, well, as we know from... Uh, Things that have happened within, you know, not not so long ago, um, they can rip your face clean off. Indeed. So, at number three, elephants. Elephants possess brains that are bigger than any other land animal. They also display remarkable self-awareness to the point where they can recognise themselves in mirrors. In a recent study, scientists discovered that elephants successfully performed during an experiment commonly used with primates to test their understanding of, of cooperation. In this particular test, the elephants had to coordinate their efforts so that each could get a bucket of corn. They all passed with flying colours. In the wild, elephants are known for rem remarkable displays of helping, empathy and compassion. They are a very social animal, so this demonstration of complex cooperation fits well with what we know about their natural lives. Isn't it um, elephant's graveyard? Is there something about they have a cognizance of when they're about to pass away? Yeah, they also go and visit their dead relatives. So they, I know that they know where they landed, so to speak. Yeah. That is pretty incredible, isn't it? And number two, gorillas. Great apes are among the most intelligent species on the planet, and there are myriad examples where they have learned to communicate with humans through the use of new sentences involving complex structures. While there remains disagreement among experts, a number of scientists argue that great apes possess symbolic cognitive abilities, allowing them to demonstrate abilities commonly associated with being human. I saw a gorilla at a zoo this year, and he was so dismissive of the general public. He really was like an angry man put in a cage. You did feel massively sorry for him. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we are homo sapiens. We're part of the great ape taxonomy, aren't we? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's... Um... Yeah, and I, I can't say so that gorilla that you mentioned, I can't say I blame him because 
No, you did feel genuinely... The, the older I get, the more at extreme unease I am with the concept of zoos. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's just... Yeah, I don't, I don't actually think I'm going to visit one again because there is just something very unseemly about the whole thing. And of course, and number one, and you probably guessed it already, dolphins. Dolphins possess large brains relative to their body size with a neocortex that is more convoluted than a human's. Experts say that this puts dolphins just behind the human brain when it comes to cognitive capacity. At the same time, the dolphin's brain cortex features the same convoluted folds that are associated with human intelligence. After listening to a marine animal researcher present this evidence at a conference in 2010, Thomas White, a professor of ethics at Marymount University, was moved to declare that dolphins should be considered non-human persons who qualify for moral standing as individuals. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's, that's weird. I thought I, I thought I would have heard something like that before, because that's quite a... Classification as non-human persons. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, I imagine that's... Because they possess a level of intelligence so close to ours. And that's a first for that assertion, isn't it? I there? believe so, a, yeah, yeah. Bloody hell. Well, there you go. You've learnt something from the Cinematalist podcast. <laughs> okay, that brings us to the end of our free episode this week. Thank you very much for listening. We're off to record our premium podcast. This week, we're going to do psychopaths and sociopaths in film. We are indeed. Are they correct? Are they good representations of what people actually consider to be psychopathy and sociopathy? We're going to go through some of the favourites, Hannibal Lecter, all that sort of stuff, and decide whether they are accurate or just simply interesting as uh, characters in a media yeah. piece. Yeah, do, do they make a film? Mm. And, uh, yeah. Is it yeah. film? That's what we're asking. Cine psychos. <laughs> so if you're interested in getting our premium stuff, please do check out our Patreon page, The Cinematalist Podcast. Uh, we do four premium episodes a month. We're also building a forum and a film community. Um, follow us uh, at Cinematalcast on Twitter. Uh, Liam, do your bit, mate. Yeah, and if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm, also, I'm Liam at the movies, and my handle is at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. That's Flicks spelled F L I X. And yeah, if you go on cinementalist.com, there is a link to the Wacko Jacko blog where you can read my weekly reviews. Make sure to follow Cinemental Cast on Twitter if you are on there, because you can get all the episodes on a weekly basis. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Okay, guys, hope to see you over on the premium content. If not, free one next week. Thank you very much. Bye.